audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4067 of an audio newspaper that has now outlived more than 99% of the chickens that were alive at the time of our first episode in 2007. Most of them we've outlived by an extremely long way. Take that, you feathery nugget nerds. You've been owned. It is Friday, the 4th of May, 2018. I am Andy Zaltzman, and I'm 43, the same age at which the world's oldest spider has just popped its eight clogs after being stung by a wasp yet more tragic, creepy-crawly-on-creepy-crawly violence. But it means that I am now officially older than the oldest spider in the world. (laughs) Shove that in your webs and wait for it to die before vomiting on it, you excessively limb-short, limbed arachno-losers. That's two species I've taken down. Uh, What a show this is. I'm in the UK, very briefly in between New Zealand and the USA. I'm literally having a very long week. Extra 16 hours for me compared to most of you losers by the time I land in Atlanta tomorrow, uh, ahead of the start of the Radiotopia live tour, which begins on Monday. Uh, That is just the kind of guy I am. I've literally lived 9.5% more than the average human being this week. What a guy. Joining me this week, uh, back in London, the Bugle's official correspondent for the Asian continent, past, present and future, (laughs) representing the... How how many billion people live in Asia these days, Annie? Four, four billion? Four, four yeah. Let's we've, go, let's go five. Yeah, we've got, uh, we've got two-thirds of the of the world. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, it is Anu Vabpal. You're representing that two-thirds of humanity. Welcome that, back. That's correct. I feel, I feel I'm capable of representing that many people. I think <laughs> for that many people, what you really need is one person. <laughs> that's <laughs> the simplest way. Anything else just gets complicated. I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, so you have been back in uh, in London doing your show at Soho Theatre, and we are recording a radio show on the twenty third of May uh, called Empire at the Backyard Comedy Club. So do come along, Buglers, if you want to see see us discussing Empire and architecture, essentially. Yeah, apparently, yeah. Apparently, apparently, something had happened two hundred fifty years ago. Some of you had come over. Yes, um, just to yeah, have a look. Yeah, maybe yep. just you, Andy. Uh, you've been around well, for a while. I've been around at the time. Yeah, uh, but we'd be studying buildings built on loot from Empire on both sides. Right. Yeah. Yes. So some of us that got rich. Yeah. Um, and some people here that got rich. Yes, and stayed rich for well, the nation stayed rich essentially ever since. So uh, thank you. Uh, yes, we're very very grateful eternally, as is uh, reflected in our government's policy towards Indian students uh, yeah. being politely told to f- right off. Correct. Um, uh, so what have you particularly enjoyed about your your trip to to Britain this time? Britain, Andy, very interesting. You know, I I am dealing with certain things that I'm unfamiliar with. British politesse. Right. You know, I'm I'm learning things about British politics. When someone says, "Excuse me, I have a slight issue," right, it could mean I've murdered their whole family. <laughs> <laughs> well, an understatement is one of our great national characteristics. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, because if someone in India came up and said, "You've murdered my whole family." It means that they have a slight issue with right. something. <laughs> it's the reverse. Andy. Right. It's it's hyperbole where I live. Also. I'm encountering for the first time that you have a very lively drinking culture. Oh, yes. Uh, This is your first full encounter with that, is it? Yes. Uh, And it is not often that I see, you know, lots of portly financial executives on a Friday evening stumble out of pubs, as you call them, just wrecked (laughs) as humans. I saw one individual in Charing Cross. I was walking around Charing Cross. And, you know, as a foreigner, I like observing foreign cities. And he 
was a rather portly gentleman, like something straight out of a P.G. Woodhouse story. Yep. And he was drunk <laughs> of his mind. <laughs> and he missed his bus and his cheeks were red. And he was standing in front of the Lyceum Theatre that has The Lion King going on. Yeah. And there's a massive poster of Mufasa the Lion. And he was growling at this poster. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is Britain. Britain yep. that I have known as the ruler <laughs> of the whole world. Pax Britannica, two-thirds of the planet, the sun never sat. Yeah. So, sun never set, or sun never sat on the empire either. <laughs> sun never set on the empire either. And, and you know, regulator regina, they used to say in Latin, the rule of the queen over the world. This empire yes. is reduced to this one portly man called <laughs> Gus shouting at the poster of an African lion. Right. Um, That's very much... A one-man metaphor for the <laughs> decline and fall of the British Empire. <laughs> when when Gibbon wrote about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it took him about 30 volumes, didn't it? Chris, how many volumes was Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire? Give me two secs. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of info you should have at your fingertips at all times. Yeah. If not all the volumes in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. Six volumes. Six, six volumes. Six. Six, not 30. No. Oh, 30 if you ripped each of those six into five separate bits. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that for the Romans is reduced to your saying, one gentleman shouting at a poster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> making lion noises. He was growling. Yeah. Edward Gibbon, from the photo, uh, or sorry, the painting uh, on his Wikipedia page, does look like how you just described that gentleman. <laughs> Maybe it's Edward Gibbon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it could be, yeah, the, the reincarnated soul of Edward Gibbon now. I mean, it's just symptomatic of the way we want instant results now in the 21st century. You know, in, if Gibbon was around today, he wouldn't have written his six, six volumes and now how many countless thousands and thousands of words. He'd have just, uh, he'd have just yeah, barked at a poster and put out a tweet saying, yeah, it all went to shit with Rome because I started drinking lead or something. <laughs> it's, it's succinct. Yeah. Succinct. Well, that's, is that progress? Yes. I think so. I mean, you know, at one point, Andy, you ruled everything from Cairo to the Levant. Yep. Well, Cairo's in the Levant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you that's ruled true. everything. But, the... but well, it depends which way you go around the world. <laughs> if, you head, if you head west from Cairo, then, I mean, that's basically it, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Correct. So and, you had all that, yeah. you know, the whole world, and now you have a man shouting at a lion. Yeah. We've still got Gibraltar. You do have that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we've still, we've still got the M um, and the Falklands and a lot of penguins. So, um, you know, we're on the comeback trail with Brexit. Are you familiar with Hexit? Hexit. So I only discovered it this week with local elections. There is a London borough called Havering, All right. which unlike most of London is quite right-leaning, very yeah. pro-Brexit. And they have a movement to secede from London and become part of Essex. Really? From the little I know of your nation, right, it's not geographically very large. Correct, yes. And within your United Kingdoms, you already have three or four different kingdoms. You yeah. have Wales, you have Scotland, you have... Yes. So all that's left is for tiny provinces to secede. Yeah. And so there are more things you add to your flag. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that is going to become complicated, isn't it? When... Uh... I mean, you look at the American flag, it's an absolute mess, isn't it? All those stars and stripes, I think. Well, see, Ferrago. So, yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally what Britain truly wants to be, and, and we're going to get onto this later, the famous old saying, an Englishman's home is his castle. Correct. So, essentially, that means that we all want to be our own independent state. So, basically, we all need a flag with, I don't know how many different families there are in Britain. Yeah. 20 million? Yeah. And a right. punt? Yeah. 20 million tiny little pixels on it. 
each representing each independent constituent nation of the United Kingdom. And, you know, now that you're such a cosmopolitan nation, if everyone has their coat of arms, it'd be fabulous. I would love to see the Patel family coat of arms. (laughs) (laughs) As always, a section of the bugle is going straight in the bin. This week, we are looking at home improvements. Now, (laughs) Anuvab. Yes. I've been obsessed by your home improvements because it just seems like that, that... that British people love redoing homes. Yes. They move into a home yep. and they immediately start getting uncomfortable. Right, And yes. a TV presenter shows up and says, <laughs> why don't you break down this wall? And it seems like you also go into really ancient and medieval things, like you'll find it as an old church and then pitch that as a home to someone. Yeah. Like you're one step away from going to the Stonehenge with a bunch of home buyers and saying, imagine this with a flat screen TV. <laughs> A roof. Yeah, I just there seems to be a continuous home discomfort. Yes, it, with with being settled in one's home. Well, I mean, I think that also might explain some of the uh, our imperial history that we've been discussing <laughs> earlier on, in which we used to turn up and try and improve other people's homes on their behalf, very generously. Um, uh, yes, I mean, it is. It does. I think now there are home improvement programs on British television now. Approximately 8,000 hours a week, um, <laughs> if you include all all channels. Anyway, to mark this, um, we have a special Bugle Home Unimprovement section, <laughs> uh, looking at how... Well, because moving house is one of the most stressful things you can do in life. Yes. Uh, along with uh, divorce, bereavement, presidency, <laughs> invading Russia during winter, watching a particularly closely fought test match, or reading below-the-line comments under an article about immigration. And... <laughs> It is right up there with all of those things. Correct. So really you want to avoid it rather than do it. Um, So we have some very handy tips uh, now to reduce your chances of having to move house. And the simplest way of doing this is by rendering your own property completely unsaleable. (laughs) And we're not talking about easy cosmetic stuff like a pile of used syringes on the front lawn or a mural of Mussolini in flagrante (laughs) with a Kawasaki motorbike on the front wall of your house. No, we're talking about genuine... Value-destroying modifications that will render your property of significantly reduced financial value, including the ceiling cellar or sealar. Why dig down when you can hang up? Suspend a stone-walled wine cellar from the ceiling in your living room. Keeps your wine at a well, well-regulated temperature. Also means that your living room ceiling is now at effectively waist height. So you now have to crawl to your sofa, or it will become known the crouch couch. Um, and there are some modifications you can make, some new accessories you can get for your house. Um, no man's landing. Um, spice up the landing of your house, a traditionally overlooked part of your upstairs, by transforming it into a First World War-themed no man's landing, replete with barbed wire, clagging mud, and the ever-present threat of death. It really helps you appreciate the sacrifice made by uh, your forebears as you attempt to struggle to the bathroom for a tinkle in the middle of the night without getting snagged on the wire or stuck in the three feet of swamp-like filth. Comes uh, complete with optional robot sniper. Uh, suggested accessory, wipe clean carpets for the rest of your house. Uh, also, the jacuzzi, which is the new luxury home accessory, a hot bubbling bath pool with rare wild animals in it. Guaranteed talking points at parties. Uh, also educational, as it can teach your children very, very quickly and extremely graphically about how Mother Nature's food chain works. But, you know, a jacuzzi in your house, that's going to that's gonna put off potential buyers. Anyway, the point is, make your house worth less and the temptation to sell significantly removed. I think, and, and even that house, given your housing market, will probably sell for a million pounds. <laughs> yeah. 
Support for The Bugle is brought to you by Simply Safe, home security done right, which is incredibly frustrating for me, having spent most of the last ten years as a secret cat burglar. <laughs> I have a lot of cats. I mean, it's a really a bad line of burglary to get into. Why don't I go for jewels? Anyway, here are my main issues. One, Simply Safe is really discreet and hard to notice, adding hours to my cat stealing planning. Two, windows and doors are comprehensively protected. Do you expect me to come down the chimney? Three, Simply Safe's power backups mean I can't even take you off the grid to execute my master plan. And four, it's cheap and contract free, which is putting me out of business fast. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect your home and your cat. Go to simplysafe.com slash bugle. That is simplysafe.com slash bugle. <laughs> Top story this week, cheating news. And there has been some glorious cheating in Indian education. Now, it is a, a highly competitive country. It's doubled in population size in, what, 30 years? Yes. Basically, fundamentally, during the course of the uh, cricketing career of Sachin Tendulkar, one of the greatest cricketers of all time, the population of India doubled, more than doubled, in fact. Correct. Which suggests that his batting really gave <laughs> India the horn. <laughs> Good God, yeah. And who can blame them? The purity of those drives. Um, um, Whatever motivates you. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah. I think it, it makes him... I mean, just just scientifically, you can prove he is the sexiest cricketer ever based on the number of new human beings that he has generated. Correct, correct. Um, He's literally the father of the nation. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, the point is, it's a very it's a competitive country to get ahead. People will do anything, and particularly at school. I think it's. I mean, there is some heroic levels of cheating in Indian education. Correct, Andy, and I think you're specifically referring to an incident in a particular part of India where some students decided to staple some currency notes <laughs> to their answer papers as a means of connecting with their examiner. Yes. And Andy, you seem to have a slight moral issue with this. <laughs> Whereas, I, I, you know, where I'm from, you know, there is no way to stand out among 5,000 examinees yep. by just your answers. No. Right? No, that's fair. Yeah. So I think some some ingenious students, and this is yeah. why entrepreneurship is thriving so well where I'm from, decided to put like a 500 rupee, 1,000 rupee note, staple it along with a poem and a joke. Because right. you may go to jail for that, Andy, yeah. but you will admit the examiner will remember you. <laughs> well, that's you've got to make an impression. I mean, also, I mean, it depends what the exam is in. If you're you know, writing an essay on the ethics of corporate taxation, that is possibly top marks, isn't it? Just basic bribery. Correct. And that's in that case, it's not even bribe. It's evidence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a chemistry lab experiment. You're attaching it. And uh, Andy, do you not have that in your culture? Like, I know you have Oxford-Cambridge entrance exams. Do oh, people... Oh, well, we do it in a more subtle British way right. in that we pay tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of pounds for our children's education. And it has essentially exactly the same. You know, if we just stapled all those banknotes, Correct. and I've benefited from this as yes. much as anyone, yes. to our exam papers, it would be a more open and honest way of showing how we do education in this country. That's my question, Andy. Yeah. I mean, would is it inappropriate, do you think, if you're answering a, a, a thing on Macbeth, yeah. you know, and you write your thing, and you know that you're an idiot, and your answer is horrendous. <laughs> Would, is it inappropriate in your culture to staple, say, a £500 note in 20s? 
Right. And oh, put it in the paper. Oh, so rather than a £500 note, which might not look particularly authentic. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's you know, we live in a transactional economy. Everything yeah. has its has its price. And also bribery is, I mean, let's not get away from this. It's yeah. a valuable life skill. Thank you. You know, from everyday simple bribes like slipping someone £2.50 over the counter in exchange for a surreptitious cup of coffee, no questions asked. Yeah. Apart from the question, do you want a muffin with that? No, no, I don't. If I wanted a muffin, I would have asked for a muffin. To right up the scale to major bribes, um, such as, as discussed, corporate taxation or the entire lobbying industry. You know, these are valuable life skills that children need need to learn and get on top of. You know, I've always been impressed by Culture Sandy, where when you bribe stuff, things got done. You know, one of the difficulties in the culture I live in is when you take away bribery, nothing gets done. Right. <laughs> because that would just be expecting the individual to do their job for the salary they're getting. Right. That makes it a very boring world, Andy. Yeah, I, yes. I cannot yeah. function in a system where there is not a parallel system. <laughs> so I don't know about your culture, but I suppose your students write the answers and then hope to get in. Well, yes. I mean, we're not averse to the odd bit of cheating ourselves. And there was there was a story this week about you, kind of prominent YouTubers. Yes, which is um, you know people who apparently earn huge amounts of money from from advising children to cheat in their exams. Apparently, excellent. Um, so yeah, which it's just each culture has its own different way of. Uh, uh, of doing it, it was interesting as well that writing poems to examiners was a rather more kind of romantic way of going up, going going about this, appealing to their their soul and their heart rather than rather than their wallet. I guess it, I mean it again depends on you know what exactly you're writing, you know what you're exa- exactly you're writing in in that poem. Yeah, some of them were romantic, Andy. Yeah. Some of them so, and but some combined. They had a poem. They had some jokes. So they wanted to show the range of talents. Yeah. So they did not know what a differential equation was. Yeah. But they're like, you know, here's a limerick. There was a man from Madras who had balls of grass. <laughs> here's a thousand rupees. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a joke. You know, 12 people walked into a bar. And <laughs> so I'm saying, isn't an examination, the point of it is to show a range of who you are as a human being. Yeah. So and, he, and also, I mean, it, again, I mean, this, what you've just said shows... The, the, one of the issues India is facing in terms of overpopulation, that generally here it's a man walks into a bar and you've gone with 12 men walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah, right there, right there. <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, bars, the, that's the Mumbai version. Correct, our bars are larger, they have <laughs> Italian names and you 12 people walk in right there. Everything is bigger, Andy. And, and you know, this this I think this archaic system, honestly, of uh, ethical exam taking, Yeah. you know, I think that... Uh, it's boring for the examiners as well. Well, it is. And also, I mean, you look at the future. What skills are our children going to need? Yeah. Everything's going to be done by robots, by computers. Yeah. You know, knowledge. No one can possibly be as knowledgeable as a even a medium-sized memory chip these days. So teach them the skills they will need. They're going to, they're going to need mental flexibility. They're going to need, you know, as you say, bribery. Correct. Um, and, and most importantly, the element of surprise. Yeah. Because say if you're a GCSE examiner, you open a paper. I assume it's still done on paper. Yeah. Everybody else has just answers. Right. This guy's put in a small marsupial. <laughs> you have the, There's the element of You have his full, full attention. attention. You have his full attention, Andy. And yeah. that's what we're exploring, Andy. This is why we are the future of the world. We're yeah. exploring things that you've traditionally introduced to us, like exams in the English language, yeah. and playing with it. They're hoping that perhaps the examiner is a lonely, pathetic underpaid individual in a small town in Uttar Pradesh. Right. And for a second, there'd be some glimmer of love. Right. 
from an 18-year-old boy. It's I, very Plato, actually. Yeah. It's very sort of, for a second, it's like, oh. You've done very well to find so many positives in this story. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> We're building think, a better world. I think, ex- first, take off their clothes, put them in prison, fail them. Yeah. I think this is, that's the way to go. In other sort of related cheating news, a museum in France devoted to the little-known artist Etienne Terrousse, who lived from 1857 to 1922, has reopened after an extensive refurbishment. (laughs) And having discovered that 82 out of the 140 works of art by Etienne Terrousse that it possessed in its world-leading Etienne Terrousse collection were, in fact... Fake. They were forgeries. I mean, quite, I mean, it suggests that the art forging industry is not at its best. I mean, why bother with Etienne Tourist when you could be, you know, forging Van Gogh or or Monet and earning the big bucks? Um, it's uh, and I, and I realise here in Britain we're not necessarily don't have too many museumic legs to stand on in terms of fake museums. I went to the British Museum recently and there was literally almost nothing British in it at all. Um, <laughs> Uh, I also went to the Museum of Forgery, and I just didn't know whether or not to, to trust what I was seeing in it. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, well, it's, a, it's a wonderful effort from uh, from the people of uh, of southern France to to bother faking so many pictures by by this relatively little known artist. Correct. So I guess uh, it wasn't done by Etienne. Whatever it was probably done by a person called Jeff, who lives somewhere. And here's the thing, though. Again, uh, here in the West, there's a lot of focus on genuine things being genuine. Yeah. Um, where I'm from, Andy, copying is an art. Right. <laughs> so if you can create a counterfeit that's as beautiful as the thing, it's almost more valued when I'm from than the original piece of work. In fact, many original artists have died penniless. Uh, we do the same thing with medicines. Uh, some some Western country will come up with some rubbish formula <laughs> after spending 30, 40 years researching. Anyone can do that. Yeah. But we make millions of them for four rupees. Now, what is the real art? Yeah. The real art is in the copying ending. And I think that uh, I'm disappointed in the museum that they're not celebrating the forger. Right. So they should have chucked out the 58 real pictures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. maybe the forger's done a better job. So the original Etienne is just some rubbish human who just came up with the original thought. But now the original thought is what is the value of original thought? Yeah, you know, we're getting um, very philosophical now. I bought a um, in my local charity shop. I bought yes. a uh, Cezanne picture for ten pounds. Correct, and uh, uh, it's a, it looked, you know, reasonably decent quality to my untrained eye. I spent ten pounds on the picture, and I thought, well, just in case, you do very occasionally hear these stories about people buying something for two quid and selling it for three hundred billion pounds later, when it turns out that that uh, Andy Warhol put his cock on it or something in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, I spent £10 on the picture and then £20 having it valued by an <laughs> online art valuation <laughs> website who confirmed that it was, in fact, not an original Cezanne, <laughs> as suspected. But I thought I couldn't, I couldn't put... Uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't have it on, my, on, on our wall at home yeah. with that nagging doubt, well, could it, you know? Yeah. Now you know confidently that you're down £27 <laughs> and you have a fake on your wall. I think yeah. that But also, like, original stuff shows up. Going back to the housing thing, didn't you guys have something where someone was digging their lawn and they found Richard III? Oh, it was a car park in Leicester. Right. So, yeah, they found, uh, yeah, a, 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 a king no longer in working order, <laughs> fair to say, <laughs> after he uh, copped uh, 100% negative injuries at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. And he was discovered rather... Yes. Uh, inelegantly um, clonked 
to pieces in a in underneath a car park. Right. In a in home improvement of... effort, I think. They, they, oh right, yeah, yeah, I forget that detail of it. Yeah, but yeah, so. but then they, they, they found it was the authentic Richard the Third. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't It was a genuine it wasn't an imitation of Richard the <laughs> Third. Um Yeah, which is which was great. And uh, you know, it's it's probably the most exciting thing that's happened in Leicester in uh I don't know, 50,000 years, or I think, <laughs> other than, of course, them winning the, the uh, Premier League football title. Uh, but it was interesting, actually, that that's, they, they found the body of Richard III and then just a few short years later, against the odds, won the Premier League. <laughs> so that just shows how amazing the British royal family is. <laughs> and also I'm fascinated by the the historians and the archaeologists that whose job it is to confirm that is indeed Richard III. Yes. I mean... They say that they have all this sonar technology now. I wonder what they do. I mean, because what Richard the Third things are around to prove that it was the guy. Um, I, I don't know how they did it. If um, Chris, can you remember how they? Was it uh, DNA? They were able to identify that the body was from the exact time. Yeah. So, and then they also had a DNA test, so they could check that it was definitely of his bloodline. And that it died at the time they thought he died. So, like, it's not 100% him. It's just probably him. Right. Yeah. Because they couldn't do what American crime shows do, which is have him lie on a table in a forensic thing, bring in yeah. relatives, remove the cloth, and just ask if it's him. Right. Uh, they did also find a receipt in his pocket <laughs> for uh, exchanging uh, one kingdom for one horse. <laughs> A bill of leading. Yeah. Yeah. This is a little uh, little Shakespeare joke for any <laughs> fans of the Bard. Uh, <laughs> but Andy, in, in the 1400s, it wasn't a car park then, was it? I don't believe so. If it was, it it was a money losing car park. It was. I mean, there was always space in it. To be fair, but um... I mean, Leicester's always been a car park. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, Chris. <laughs> Let's move on to the Swedish faking one of their national dishes. Yes. The Swedish government has admitted that Swedish meatballs uh, do, in fact, go back to a recipe brought back by the Swedish king Charles XII from Turkey 300 years ago in the early 18th century. So the Swedish meatball is, is a fake. It is a cheat. It's a cheating dish. They nicked it from Turkey in the early 1700s. And one of the things I hate about <coughs> Scandinavians, Andy... <laughs> oh, right. Well, this is going out an interesting route. <laughs> one of the things I dislike about Scandinavia, Andy... Apart from their wildly successful economy and their high standard of living and their... Free education. national happiness ratings. Yes, yes. What else? Yeah. Apart from that, it's like a Monty Python. <laughs> yeah. um, is, there, is there this desire to not lie? Right. Because they actually, <laughs> this is a horrible thing, because they actually went in and said we would confess and say that Swedish meatballs came to us because Charles Twelfth, one of their apparent kings, went yep. to Turkey, ate it, brought it back, right? And, yep. then, and then essentially, all these years later, someone in the health ministry, for no apparent reason, was not comfortable with just living with the lie. <laughs> Which to me is incomprehensible where I'm from. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for the longest time, if you guys had still been around for another hundred years, we would have claimed the beef wellington as ours. <laughs> well, we claimed the, ch the chicken tikka masala. As yours, yeah. <laughs> as, you should, yeah as you um, should. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is odd, isn't it? I mean, certainly, well, I mean, 
as I think we've probably discussed on the Bugle before, Britain as a nation does not always confront its historic bloopers or right. apologise for little procedural glitches that may have resulted in the starvation of millions of people or the pilfering of large diamonds. <laughs> Tiny um, bureaucracy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Sweden is sharing too much. Too much. Yeah. Who wanted to know? Yeah. We knew them as Swedish meatballs. Now, is it going to be Istanbul meatballs? And, right. and But knowing the Swedish, they'll probably pay reparations for it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they'll... I, I don't know what the Swedish national dish is, but they'll probably send over tons of it over to Ankara. Yeah. And why do that? Why be, which is why I love this press release, because in The Guardian, it said the Swedish government came out and revealed this abruptly and for no immediate apparent reason. <laughs> yeah, again, well, that's, again, testament maybe to a country where there's just not enough important things happening, that yeah. the government ends up, all right, right, what's next on the agenda? Uh, we appear to be economically pretty stable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's you know a few little things here and there related to immigration, inequality, or whatever, but nothing we can't just back to one side as a as a consumer driven economy. Oh, so what? Oh, let's apologise for a three hundred year old meatball recipe. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And uh, I think there was a a Swedish person who said something like, "I don't know how I can live with myself." <laughs> <laughs> yes, the other was a tweet saying, "My whole life has been a lie." Yeah. 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 Andy, well, there's always hidden victims in these things. When there's a Mumbai monsoon, we were trying to do a podcast. Yes, and there was a chance of essentially the entire studio being flooded yeah. and us drowning. Yeah, that's when you say, "I don't think I can live with myself," right. <laughs> because I think the natural elements are against me. Yeah. not when, not when you have something like this. We've just found out that the meatballs that will always be there yeah. may have originated in the Orient. It's a tough time for Sweden. <laughs> Uh, all our thoughts are with our Swedish buglers as they come to terms with this shocking revelation. Britain news now, and uh, we've had a bit of a, a political upheaval here. Now, I've uh, been uh, in New Zealand uh, in the, the last week. I've just flown back yesterday, and I'm flying out to America uh, tomorrow. Uh, so I've, I've not entirely kept on top of this story, but uh, Amber Rudd, our Home Secretary, uh, resigned after it became clear that she hadn't been as 110% truthful as we want our politicians uh, to be. Uh, and she claimed she didn't, she wasn't aware of any immigration targets, despite having told the Prime Minister herself of her intention to increase deportations by 10%. So I, I guess it's a semantic thing. When does an intention become a target. I mean, this could be dragged through the courts for for years. Uh, I mean, I guess it also shows the danger of setting specific numerical targets. And it would have been far better for Amber Rudd just to set a vague thematic target of making Britain a full, heartless shit of a nation. And that is much more measurable in many ways yes. and achievable. Yes. And she was going very much the right way about it, as we were, as discussed in the live bugle in, in Melbourne, sending British people back, not home. Yes, <laughs> it, yes, yes. It, it was, oh yeah, it's bizarre. But I have a question, yeah. Andy. Um, everyone has targets. People who yep. have day jobs have targets. And this lady had a target you yep. know, to achieve certain numbers. And yes, it may have been better if her target said some people should leave at some point in yes. time. Yeah, but keep it vague. Keep it specific, yeah. Um, you know, uh, but she had numbers to achieve, yeah. right? Uh, could you, I don't know much about your system of government, but could you, for example, have done it like, you know, when you overbook an airline seat? Yeah. So clearly the Home Office feels there are too many people in Britain, yes. right? 
and they needed to achieve a certain number, could they go to the public and say, right, if you want to give up your seat... <laughs> And do you think some of your people would be willing? I mean, I don't, just a well, question. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of people have already got off to Spain, haven't they? I mean, certain um, former podcasters jumped ship and moved to America. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, and it's really possible. some compensation, like a tiny amount, like, say, £600 and a voucher from Topshop. Yeah. You know, something specific, you know? Then, I mean, that, that would be an absolute stampede towards... <laughs> Every single airport in Britain for that, I think. Um, we are motivated by money, as proved by, for example, every single election campaign we've had in the last 25 years and more. Um, it's uh, Also, there has been now, the government has apologised for what it, uh, what it has done to uh, in the Windrush case for people who've been living here for decades and decades. Uh, apologies are a little bit belated, mm. given that it was something that it would have been so easy not to do. You know, just to <laughs> conduct yourself with a basic level of decorum and humanity as a government. It, it's like saying sorry after baking someone's pet cat into their birthday cake. It should never have reached that point. Right. The apology is too little, too late. And I have a question about that, Andy, and it was similar during when we talked about Brexit as well. It seems like your government tries to take a thing that's not, not no one's paying attention to or is not broken. Yes. And then... Somehow break it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we've done that with electoral fraud as well. They've, they've, it, it, in the local elections this week, um, which resulted in not much of major significance happening. Both parties did okay after a fierce campaign that was fiercely fought uh, within the parties as the Conservatives <laughs> attacked the Conservatives and Labour attacked Labour. Fundamentally, um, yeah, basically a boxing match in which both fighters stood in opposite corners, punching themselves in the balls. Um, isn't democracy fun? That's um, our parliament. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, they, so they to deal with the almost non-existent problem of electoral fraud in this country, they started making people come uh, turn up with official ID. And a lot of people who didn't have this were old, you know, older people um, who were then turned away from the polling station. Think we ha The turnout in our local elections is generally about 30%. And if you turn up trying to vote in a local election and then are not allowed to, this is insanity. If you turn up, you should automatically Correct. be allowed to vote as often as you want <laughs> just for showing the commitment yeah. to be asked. Yeah. She should have one vote for anybody. And electoral fraud was not a big thing in your country. It, almost negligible. And I think this is a sad indictment of our culture. Because to vote in the general election here, uh, basically you just need to turn up and they have a list of everyone's name and you get a polling card, but you don't need to take it with you. You can just like say who they say, who are you? And they cross your name off. And you could basically just say, anyway, you just point, I'm Elsie from number 34. And uh, it, electoral fraud in the country would have been a piece of cake, and we haven't bothered with it. Even with this... Open, I mean, do we not even care about our politics enough to commit basic entry-level fraud? What kind of nation are we? Correct. Someone, you know, let me give you a small anecdote from a culture where we thrived on electoral fraud. Yep. Um, now, of course, they have electronic voting machines, so very the whole it's very disappointing. Because, but when I was growing up in the 80s in Calcutta, I showed up to vote in my local municipal election, and I met a local thug outside the polling booth. And he said, oh, yeah, he looked at my name and he said, oh, you've, you voted. And I said, who voted for me? And the thug said, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's clear something got done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, That's it, just shows commitment. Yeah, and I signed my name and he was, there was sort of a veiled thread because he was a big guy. Yeah. And he'd done it. And, and I asked him, who did I vote for? Yeah. <laughs> 
and he told me who I voted for, and that's properly done. Now yeah. that's the thing. Now, that's not a problem in your country, apparently. Yeah, no, no, we we just can't be bothered. Yeah. A leading uh, a leading British political party emailed the Bugle email address this week, asking us to cast our vote. Right. But addressed as dickwads. Now, if you showed up to vote, you'd have to prove some ID that you were Mr. Dickwad, or that or that you were a dickwad. Yeah. You have to <laughs> I mean, prove. that comes easy for some of us. <laughs> I mean, clearly, there is a flip side to this um, in this era of the hostile environment. And uh, the new um, Home Secretary, uh, Sajid Javid, who's the son of uh, immigrants himself, has uh, pledged to end this this whole idea of a hostile environment. We'll see how that pans out. But fundamentally, what the great mistake made by the people who are the victims of this heartless policy was that they were not... Uh, Russian oligarchs <laughs> and if they'd only taken the trouble not to be uh, people who came from the Caribbean in the 1940s 50s and 60s but been dodgy billionaires from Siberia who'd stolen their nation's mineral wealth they would have been fine Before we wrap up uh, this week's Bugle we have a special Bugle feature section quiz now and the quiz is all about the forthcoming Bugle live shows yes. around the world over the next few months. Um, thanks enormously to everyone who came to see my uh, my solo shows and the live Bugle shows on my uh, Southern Hemisphere uh, tour. They were a, a lot of fun for me, and I do hope you as well, if you're in the audience uh, back next year, all being well. But now is the quiz on the forthcoming Bugle live shows. Question one. The Bugle will shortly be embarking on a three-city USA tour. This is after the six-date Radiotopia tour, which begins on Monday the 7th of May, to which a new date in Brooklyn on the 10th of May has been added. All details at radiotopia.fm slash live. Following the Radiotopia tour, the Bugle will have three live shows featuring the all-sibling brother and sister pair of Andy and Helen Zaltzman, plus via video link from across the Pacific, Alice Fraser, uh, who is not related to either me or my sister. Your question is, three of the following four American sports franchises are fictitious. One is real. The three fictitious ones are from the cities that, that, is a, that are about to host the Bugle Live. The real one is not. So spot the three fictitious franchises and you'll know where we'll be doing Bugle Live shows. The four franchises are, one, the Dallas Cowboys. Two, the San Francisco Schnitzel Flagellators. Three, the Portland Meows. And for the Seattle STDs. The Dallas Cowboys sounds like a lion. That doesn't sound like a team at all. Well, uh, you're wrong, in fact. Pens down for question one. Uh, San Francisco on the 15th of May, Portland on the 17th, Seattle on the 19th. Question two, the Bugle Live will be taking part in two of the following six festivals this coming August. Which ones? Your options for the six festivals are... Yes, Andy. The Junior Hells Angels Vroom Vroom Kaboom Fest 2018. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival, with dates on the 15th and 22nd of August. The Baffin Island Summer Festival of Nocturnal Tropical Wildlife, which hopefully will have fewer fatalities than last year's version. Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> or the End of the Road Music Festival at the Llama Tree with a Bugle live show late on the Friday night, which I believe is the 31st, with Alice Fraser. Uh, Alice and I will also be doing stand-up sets uh, at the on the comedy stage at the festival. Uh, of course, uh, well, it's Ed- Edinburgh. I mean, it pens down Edinburgh and and the end of the road. Rosh Hashanah is in September. It's not in August. <laughs> you don't need to be a, ro- a rocket um, 
um, expert a rocket uh, Friday night at a music festival yeah uh, it's about midnight as well it's going to be uh, absolutely prime podcast territory Um, (laughs) do come along if you're at the end of the road (laughs) to accompanying music (laughs) the Bugle is doing two live shows at London's Udderbelly later this summer they'll be taking place on which two of the following three celebrities beginning with Jay's birthdays A John Maynard Keynes, celebrity economist. B, Jesus Christ, alleged Messiah. And C, American pop songstress Jessica Simpson. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure you know their birthdays, don't you? Of I course, mean, I mean, memorised. I thought Jay-Z would be on this list as uh, well. <laughs> no, he's not. Jesus Christ, of course, famously born uh, 25th of December. Everyone knows that. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, 5th of June. Jessica Simpson, the 10th of July. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, well, it is those... Lo- Keynes and Simpson. Bugle dates on the 5th and of June and the 10th of July. Also a Satirist for High World Cup special on the 5th of July. Come to that too. And finally, the final of these questions. Question four. The Bugle is taking a show to the Lowry Centre in Salford in October. Sadly, L.S. Lowry, the artist after whom the centre is named, will be unable to be a special guest at the show on the 7th of that month, as he sadly died in the year 1976 at the age of 88. (laughs) But if he was able to be a guest on that show, what would he probably spend the entire show doing? A, puns about factories, chimneys and urban life. Oh, no. B, painting pictures of stick people going about their daily business in an industrial landscape. C, an oddly dispassionate striptease. Or D, the kind of up-to-the-minute satirical commentary in which this podcast exclusively deals. Well, C, obviously. (laughs) You know when you get a vision of your future and it's not great? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, the answer is B he, he would just paint as his stick anyway if you've got the answers to any or all of those questions right you have won the right to buy a ticket at face value to any of those shows particularly uh, the ones forthcoming in America uh, the Radiotopia live tour starts on Monday in Atlanta 7th of May then Durham Washington DC Brooklyn on the 8th 9th and 10th New York City on the 12th Boston on the 13th then the Bugle Live is in San Francisco on the 15th, Portland on the 17th, Seattle on the 19th, and the rest. All details are on the website now, Chris. Is that correct? Thebuglepodcast.com. Click on the live link. We I are, made it. We are joining the 20th century. <laughs> the late 20th century at last. Um, Annie Vab, it's been an absolute delight having you, uh, having you on. Uh, do come and see our radio recording on the 23rd of May in, um, uh, at the Backyard Comedy Club in Bethnal Green. Uh, Where we celebrate the deceit and treachery of empire. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, celebrate. On both sides. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming. Buglers, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth, Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss Lime Bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.